Hello, everybody. This is Steve Smith of WCG Patient Radio. WCG is a company focused on the ethical treatment of people who volunteer for clinical trials and the safety, efficiency, and success of those trials to address unmet medical needs. Today, we are speaking with Frank Sazanowski, a senior attorney with Hyman, Phelps, and McNamara, a law firm in Washington, D.C., with 35 lawyers focused on food, drug, and device law. Frank Sazanowski is an expert in regulation relating to drug development and a specialist in, among other things, rare diseases, new science, transformative legislation, and communications between regulators and drug developers. His testimony and input is sought by Congress, the President of the United States, drug developers, and leading patient advocacy groups. He serves on the board of directors of the Every Life Foundation for Rare Disorders as vice chairman and is formerly a board member of the National Organization for Rare Disorders, serving as both chairman and vice chairman from 2000, the year 2000 to 2016. In 2018, he was appointed to the board of the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine Foundation for Cell and Gene Medicine. President Obama recognized his contribution to the report of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, called, subtitled, Propelling Innovation in Drug Discovery. He's an adjunct professor of neurology at the University of Rochester Medical Center, and in 2012 documented his analysis of the FDA's flexibility regarding approvals for therapies for rare disorders. That was titled, Quantum of Effectiveness, Evidence in FDA's Approval of Orphan Drugs, and was published in the March 2012 issue of Drug Information Journal. Hello, Frank. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's great to be here, Steve, and great to uh, uh, reconnect. I've got some really um, nice uh, questions I can't wait to hear you talk about. Um, I want to say that we, um, um, I remember fondly how we first met when you were on the board of directors of the National Organization for Rare Disorders back in the year 2002, when my son and I came to Washington, D.C. to present at Nor <clears throat> Nord's conference about our experience with rare disease in my family. My son and your son both have rare diseases, and you were nice enough to come with your son, and they're similar in age. So um, you hosted us for dinner, and we were joined by Abby Meyer, the founder of Nord, and her husband. And that was really quite a gathering, given, given the difference that you and Abby Myers have made in rare disease drug development, uh, orphan drugs, for, for such a long time, had no nobody that really wanted to develop treatments. And um, legislation that you and Abby Myers worked on, the Orphan Drug Act, for example, but many things since then have made such a difference. Can you talk a bit about that and how things have transformed for the better since those days in the 80s and 90s? Yeah, no, that's, that's great, Steve. Yeah, I, I have the benefit of having historical perspective. I guess that's one of the advantages of being an elder. Uh, but uh, it turns out that uh, it, the uh, FDA thought that when Congress passed the orphan drug legislation that was championed by Nord and by Abby Myers, uh, that FDA thought it was going to be so groundbreaking that they elevated the person who was head of the, in those days, Bureau of Drugs, Dr. Marion Finkel, put her up in the commissioner's office, made her the head of this new orphan or, uh, office of orphan products. And but nothing happened um, after Ronald Reagan signed it into law in January 1983. So about a year later, the deputy commissioner of FDA, Mark Novich, asked me to investigate it and figure out what's going on. I did some 
flu thing and came, discovered that there were two components, I won't go into it, of that, that law that were, I think, problematic and why people weren't rushing to use this new law, this new authority. And, and I went in to talk to Dr. Marion Finkel and said, here's what I found and here are my two solutions. She picks up a rotary phone on her desk. So you got to remember, this is like 1984. Picks up a rotary phone on her desk, doesn't tell me who she's calling. And she, she dials a number and she says, Henry, we have a problem, but I think we have a solution. And she hands me the phone, says Frank, you know, and, and it turns out it's Henry Waxman, uh, who was the father of the Orphan Drug Act. <laughs> and I told him. A member of Congress, I, right? Yeah, member of Congress. Yeah, right. Ahead of the uh, the House Energy and Commerce Committee Health Subcommittee. So he he very very influential congressman. And uh, and I uh, 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 I told him what I saw as the two problems in the law that he had authored and gotten Congress to enact. And I told him about the two I think what a problems. And I told him about my two solutions. And so then we worked it out and. What ended up happening is that there were then a 1984 amendment to the original law that set the orphan drug kind of target as 200,000 persons in the United States. So it was more easy to determine who was going to be developing a therapy for a rare disease. It was unclear in the original law. And so we had a nice, clear, bright line test, simplified everything. And the other thing was a 1985 amendment to the law, which was the other problem I saw, which removed the requirement that to be an orphan drug, you had to prove that you could not be patented. And no patent counsel in the United States worth their salt wanted to create an affidavit that said, I'm not creative enough to figure out a way to create a patent for this therapy. So those were the two <laughs> impediments. And so I think a lot has changed. Those were the, and then I drafted the original regulations to implement the act for the, for the FDA. And so I've been involved since the beginning. So when you ask me, how have I seen things change and for the better? Yeah, I, uh, it, it has changed. It's been remarkable. It's been wonderful. And I have always been a champion for getting the patient voice involved in the rare disease development process. I mean, one thing that struck me when I began to work in this field in the, you know, that period of the 83, 84 was, um, when I looked as a lawyer at the laws, the first federal drug law was in 1906, the Pure Food Drug Act. The word patient never appears in that original law. In fact, the word patient didn't appear in any federal drug law until 2012. And what it told me is that it took more than 100 years for Congress and our laws to even recognize that patients have a place in when we're considering new medicines and that sounds to us so foreign it's perplexing like how could that be but i'm trying to help your listeners understand how far as a society we've come because back then it was more the role of the regulators and the industry and the medical community to develop therapies and there was a great deal of paternalism you know the, the patient was kind of the product the one you deliver the service to but they weren't part of the process and we in the patient advocacy community and I say that because I was you know long time on the word I've always been a patient advocate and myself have a rare disease as you noted my son has a rare disease so within the rare disease community we have championed this 
we've actually been a model, I think, for the rest of the nation and all other conditions that people are affected with because we've championed having the patient involved in the development of new therapies. Um, yes, so I, I know that we, we have yeah. we have so ahead, many um, so many positive changes in recent times um, that have improved drug development, including for rare diseases, that have been brought about by the collaboration between patients with the FDA, with the companies, with the members of Congress and the, the NIH and so forth. This collaboration seems really to be key. But I know that um, you've mentioned before that as as recently as the late 90s, it wasn't like that at all, that the FDA and patients were more, how, what was that like? Was it adversarial or no, it was just different? It the, the, patients just weren't considered. And to be adversarial means that you were at least recognized. You just weren't in the environment. <laughs> you didn't have a place at the table, the proverbial table, and and uh, so we 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 it, it's changed a great deal. And I think FDA has there have been people inside the FDA. I think like this Dr. Woodcock, who has always understood how important it was to have patients at the table. In fact, uh, about 15 years ago, Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, uh, Janet Woodcock, and I where the three people invited to spend a weekend at a resort with the vice presidents of R&D, research and development for all the big pharma companies. And my talk, my opening talk was, listen to the rising power of the voice of the patient. You know, and so that was 15 years ago, you know, and, and it was a novel concept, you know, and, and, and today you see some of these companies creating like at Merck, you know, I think they have a chief patient officer. In addition to a chief medical officer and a chief financial officer, they have a chief, a CPO, a chief patient officer. It's, my heart almost leaps with joy to see these changes. I remember sitting in the opening um, uh, hearing that the Energy and Commerce Committee had um, to kick off the uh, 21st Century Cures listening period of multiple months. And in that, um, as they were reading the reason for their having this uh, effort, they, the, the sentence was in there that the federal drug and device approval apparatus was in many ways the relic of another era. So there were members of Congress uh, saying that in a, an official statement, and then the commissioner of the FDA was there, and Janet Woodcock was there testifying, and they agreed. And so I, I felt, uh, an impact too, because some uh, time before that, I had years before that, I'd gone to speak with the FDA and the members of Congress, and I didn't hear that kind of talk. So there they were, not asking yeah. us what's wrong with rare diseases, but telling us they're going to do something about it. Yeah. Big know, change. I, yeah, I think, Steve, that actually I have to give credit. I'm giving credit to the rare disease community, patient community, but I think the 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 ACT UP and and the the AIDS activists in the you know back there in the mid 80s which around the same time that they were they were they made it known to the FDA they they had to be you had to pay it FDA had to pay attention to them and so we made some changes now I'm switching back and saying we I'm talking now when I was at FDA that we created systems. We created what's called a subpart H approval or accelerated approval, a way to get drugs approved on the basis of just showing a finding on a surrogate. That is not how actually you affect how it affects how a patient feels or functions, but it affects something that is reasonably likely to predict 
ultimate clinical benefit. In those days for AIDS, it was looking at the CD4 count of um, a measure of viral load, um, because even though that doesn't reflect how a patient feels or functions, it was predictive of whether or not they were going to survive. Um, and so those were changes that the FDA did in response to the advocacy of the patient community, the, the AIDS activist community um, back in the mid 80s. And um, we're, FDA is still unraveling some of that. And let me give you an example, a practical example. Sure. That was the mid 80s. I helped because I was a reg writer back then. And, 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 and one thing we did was we created a part of the IND regulations called subpart E, in which we said in that regulation, which still exists, it's still there, it says that patients with rare, didn't say rare, patients with serious diseases where there's an unmet medical need, those patients are willing to accept more risk. And they're willing to accept more uncertainty about the benefit because their needs are so great in exchange for having quicker access to drugs. That was something we created in the mid 80s. Fast forward, December 2019, I mean four months ago, the FDA released a new draft guidance document called Substantial Evidence of Effectiveness. In that document, for the first time ever, the FDA said, we at FDA are concerned when we're treating diseases that are serious and there's an unmet medical need, which almost all orphan conditions are like that. They said, we FDA should not only be concerned about type one error, that is worried about having a false positive, that is approving a drug when maybe there isn't benefit, but we FDA should also be equally concerned when we're talking about serious diseases, where there's an unmet medical need, about type two error which is a false negative. That is turning down a therapy from being approved and available to patients because we think it won't work. And so it was, it's kind of the extension of the regulation that I helped draft in the mid 1980s, but we see it blossoming. What I see is we keep evolving. We keep as a society and as is as reflected in FDA, we still see a maturation of this process, which is moving to recognize the importance of making this appropriate for patients and having balance and bringing the patient voice into the process. And we can talk more about how that's accomplished. Yes, like the um, AIDS activists, which uh, the rare disease community has so much really to um, to be thankful for what the AIDS activists accomplished, and then the way um, you and the um, in the rare disease community merged right into that when it was happening. Yeah. Today, everybody still wants speed. We want we want these treatments now because these are progressive diseases that are causing irreparable harm. Yet there's yeah. the the balance act between speed and safety and. I would like to believe as a patient advocate that with modern science and modern computing and different ways of data collection and so forth, we could have both. And we could, and with precision medicine, we have increasingly smaller populations. So mm -hmm. it, it seems like we'll never get a lot of rare diseases um, with an FDA approved treatment unless we take these new paths that you're describing. Isn't that right? I think that's exactly right. I think that and, and and I'll add something to that, you know, because you said you, you you have to contrast speed with safety. 
uh, I would say you have to contrast speed with safety and certainty. I say because speed, patients who are desperate, you know, I'm going to uh, I'm going to be meeting with the FDA on another rare neurodegenerative disease therapy tomorrow. Um, those people with that condition need help now. And so there's always the need for speed, but you want to contrast it, you said, with safety. That's apparent. I think most people get that, Steve. Uh, but the other thing is what I said was certainty, because the other thing is certainty of benefit. And I think that that's where I get into the type two error, that I think that we want to think about both giving access to therapies, but they have to be both safe and effective. And so the, but, but, but how much, how much guarantee do we have to have? How much confidence about safety uh, when we're talking about a very serious life-threatening neurodegenerative disease, for instance, where life expectancy is not great and the quality of life is worse. And, and we're talking about getting access to that. You know, the FDA just came out this week with a new guidance on type two diabetes. And what they said was in the new guidance is, you know, we think we need even more patients exposed to any new medicine for diabetes, and we need more subjects, that 4,000, and we need longer subjects. We need something like three to 500 subjects for at least two years. Now, these numbers are unheard of, unheard of in the regulatory sense of the FDA's never said such a large number as 4,000, and never said so long as two years. The longest it's ever been before was one year. So the FDA's came out with it. Well, that's appropriate because you're talking about type 2 diabetes where there's lots of therapies out there. Um, it's a very serious disease, but the FDA wants to be even more certain of the safety of any new therapy. Contrast that with kind of the very rare, serious neurodegenerative disease that I'm going to be talking to the FDA about tomorrow. And for those people who have a very diminished ex life expectancy with a compromised quality of life. For them, they don't need to be as certain of the safety because they told the FDA and the FDA understands that, that they're willing to accept more risk of, on the safety side as well as on the benefit side. Does yes, I know we've got some legislation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely does. So in 21st century cures, and I believe it may be even in the, the Padufa laws before that, the risk versus benefit began, um, began to emerge where, you know, yeah. Congress passed some laws saying, asking really the FDA to start folk, you know, putting that more into their decisions. Yeah. And right. so the, the patient communities um, and the FDA, I'm sure too, struggle with how, how can that be actually documented in a way that the FDA can use it for the kind of decision making they have to make. Are we actually making progress there or are we just spinning I our think wheels? So. Talking to, you know, senior FDA officials, the Dr. Woodcock, uh, the, you know, Dr. Peter Marks over in the Center for Biologics, Wilson Bryan, in the, uh, who's in charge of gene therapy and cell therapies over there in biologics, and people like Peter Stein and Bob Temple uh, over in drugs, that these people all understand that, that um, this risk benefit. Uh, analysis that is that you're referring to gives the FDA an opportunity to, in a qualitative sense, be able to describe, you know, the the risks and the benefits, so that the decision makers can be able to weigh in a, a in, in a in in a manner 
that will allow them to factor in the patient perspective. And so I think that it's been seen by senior FDA officials as a very useful tool that Congress has kind of empowered them with. Yes, and then um, I'm guessing there's still a lot of conflict uh, where there are people um, within the FDA who are um, maybe concerned about it, the decisions not being scientific enough and rigorous enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and there, there's a balancing concern that how else are you going to get these very small patient populations done? Yeah, I mean, Trying. what what I what what I what I say is and um is, you know, by luck of the draw, that your son and my son both you know happen to have very rare conditions. Does does that mean that they have any less of a need for a therapy than just by luck, uh, another person's condition happens to be, you know, essential hypertension or type 2 diabetes. And so, therefore, you can do a study of 5,000 patients in those conditions. And so, a drug that has a very marginal but important benefit, but very marginal, you can see it statistically in that kind of population that is pretty homogeneous and is very large. Whereas, do you, does, does, does the system, and I, I, I hate to say it, I don't know, does the government, does our society, do, do we really want to kind of condemn people who have rare diseases to only have access to therapies that are going to be nearly a cure? Because in a very small study, in a very heterogeneously expressed condition, that to be able to show a statistically significant difference, you, you're going to have to have a very, very profound effect on the progression of that condition. And so it, 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 it's, it's, I'm raising almost a philosophical question, Steve, that I never raise when I go in and meet with the FDA because, you know, we're usually talking about getting traction on the data that's in front of us. And we're not talking yes. philosophically like this. But I think that for your listeners, I think it's an important question to say, don't we want to provide, you know, access to therapies, you know, and, and the way to do that might be to accept a little less certainty about the magnitude of the benefit, you know, than you would require if you're treating a very common disease and you have the luxury to do very big studies. Yes, and this is the common ground when we talk about rare diseases individually are rare, but collectively it represents 10% of the population or so, uh, something like that. It's, yeah. um, it is common across most of them that we have to figure out a way to get a proof or at least a decision from the FDA, get, get them enough information that maybe it's not absolute proof. But all the rare diseases have that problem. So as you say, we have to decide what kind of society we want to be. Yeah, we have, we're seeing this in the extreme now. I know some people, uh, there was a founder of a company called Iona, Stan Crook, who's really the father of anti-sensor ligand nucleotides. And there are other people, like there's a researcher up in Harvard, and, and this is quite common where people are trying to come up with individualized anti-sensor ligand nucleotide therapies that can be nearly curative for an N of one. That is, there's only one patient in the world known with this missense mutation, for instance. And, and, and how do you, and, and I've been part of some of these preliminary discussions between NIH and Francis Collins and Chris Hawson there, and, 
and FDA people like Peter Marks and Janet Woodcock. How do you grapple with that, with an N of one situation? And, and so you go all the way from that situation, Steve, to situations where you have very few subjects like with MPS7 um, and FDA approved a drug, Mepsevi, about two years ago for that. There's very few, few subjects in the United States and the FDA did something very creative. It said, essentially, we're gonna look at a multi-domain responder index. We're going to look at mm -hmm. all the different things that could be a phenotypic expression of the underlying pathophysiology. We're going to look at those, let's say, five or six or seven domains, and we're going to chart how each person did, like the seven or 12 people in the study, and we're going to chart how each one did, and we're gonna rate them as having been improved, stable, or deteriorated over the course of these, and we're gonna take a look at this like a heat map and see if we can discern from that a pattern that suggests benefit. Now, that's nothing, I, I know your organization just purchased Statistics Collaborative at the end of the year, which is, I think, the most advanced, most sophisticated statistical consulting group on drug development in the world. And so yes. you have people who can help, you know, design studies that can try to discern statistically significant benefits in very small populations. But this is something in which when the FDA approved it, there was no p-value because you had a trial of seven to 12 people. There, there was no p-value that you could assign, but the FDA saw qualitatively that there was benefit in this picture. So we're gonna come up with new systems is what I'm talking about. I'm trying to you know, kind of edge into a conversation of we need to change sometimes endpoints, we need to change systems, we need to think about how we look. We need to look, one thing I say, Steve, to people is if you have a rare condition, find some way that you can connect up with others and try to gather your information in a systematic way about the important things that would be measured in your disease so that we can create a baseline so that someday when somebody does come up with a therapy, we can take your information and use it as a natural history, as an external control, or if you yourself are lucky enough or, or are willing, altruistic enough to be part of the study, we can go back and look for a year, two years, three years at how you had been progressing or deteriorating on the important hallmark expressions of your condition. And then when you get randomized into a trial, you could then see if you are on the experimental therapy, whether there's an inflection point and suddenly you are changing on those important measures. And so you can have patients as your own control, which allows each patient to, um, you, you get rid of intersubject variability because you're using yep. each patient as their own. Yeah. You're talking about something that um, when Janet Woodcock is uh, helping patient advocacy groups understand what they can actually do to help drug development, she's quite consistent in saying if if you could characterize your diseases in a formal way, right. get get right. that natural history that's so yeah. lacking because there's yeah. no baseline. So we can't get the trials even started. Or if they do start, we don't have the right information to know if the data is okay. So right. that that's a very good piece of advice. Yeah, yeah. So it's the patient. Natural so, history. And, and to show you how the FDA is flexible, I gave you the example of MEPSEVI and stuff, I'll tell you that, that there was another case, I was invited about, hmm, about a year and a half ago, I was invited by a patient organization representing patients with a very rare 
skin disease called epidermolosa bullosa. You might know it as mm -hmm. a, uh, it, it's a condition that's diagnosed at birth because the nurse will take the newborn, the neonate, and when they're cleaning, the, the skin is literally coming off. And so there's no adhesion. Mm -hmm. So it's a terrible condition. You can just picture this. And so when the patient organization called Debra called me and said, Frank, we'd like to give you a Lifetime Achievement Award. And I said, you know, I'm honored. I'm very honored. But I, most of the time when patient organizations do that, I am very honored. It's because I've helped get the first therapy approved for their condition. I said, I have not even helped on any therapy for EB. And they said, Frank, you know, all the work you've done with rare diseases, a rising tide raises all boats. And so we have investment in our disease areas because of the work you've done in general for all rare diseases. So we'd like to honor you. I said, okay, I'll come on one condition that I not sit with your board of directors and I not sit with anybody from industry, but I sit with patients. So I get to know your patients. I came, I came back from that dinner in New York City and I called the FDA and said, look, what I heard at this dinner, I sat next to two little girls who were 11 and 12, that they were badly affected. You know, they had lesions all over their bodies. They were wonderful spirits, wonderful spirits. But what I was told is that to get a therapy approved for them, that the FDA's normal, traditional way of approving a therapy for a dermatologic condition is to say that you have to get a person's condition to be cured or nearly cured. That means their skin has to be clear or nearly clear. So I called the FDA and I talked to the lead person in responsible and I said, if I'm a devout Catholic, if, if these two girls went to Lourdes and were dipped in the water there, they're not gonna get the clear or nearly clear. So, so the FDA official on their own initiative said, Frank, why don't we think about having a um, patient day and why don't you bring patients in and talk to us and it's called an externally led patient-focused drug development meeting. And, and let's learn about their condition. So we did that and we had this meeting and the FDA came and they listened very attentively. And within a month, I think, the FDA issued its first guidance document on this condition, ED. And in that guidance document, it nowhere said that you had to get these people to clear or near clear in order to have a success. So the FDA, that's how responsive the FDA, once the FDA understood the disease, the FDA and its own initiative changed because they heard the patient voice. And what I'm told with this community is that now there's a lot more interest among academics and industry to now begin to look into this field because they know they now have an achievable target. So I'm I'm just using different examples, Steve, to show how it's the whole community. When I mean community, I mean it's the patients who are, I think, leading. But it, the FDA is very sensitive, very attuned, very responsive, and so is industry and academia. And so I think we, as that's why I say we as a society, are kind of evolving and maturing. And it's been it's been a a, a real um, uh, uh, part of the best part of my life is to see this maturation, is to see this evolution. And uh, Yes, when, so, when, when I look back, yeah. what you're talking about, and you mentioned looking back and having that historical perspective, um, I, I talk to advocates just starting out often because their, parent, their parents who've just had a child diagnosed, 
And I say, you know, these things you may do if you come to Rare Disease Day on Capitol Hill and meet with legislators, whatever it is you're doing or back in your community, those things do actually make a difference. But sometimes you have to look at the look at it in decades. And, and we have um, 21st Century Cures passed. It was 400 pages of legislation. And, you know, we've had a breakthrough therapy designation and the, the Rare Pediatric Disease Voucher Act and patient-centric right. drug development. Many of these things, these are formalizations to, to me of a really robust communication and interaction between the FDA, who are serving as regulators, and the companies de um, with developing the evidence and the patients. And it, it, it's a, something that started with patients going to talk to the FDA and talk to members mm -hmm. of Congress. But then it, it becomes formalized to the work of you and others who have worked so hard to hammer out what does that really mean in terms of the law. Um, mm -hmm. It's just amazing yeah. to see this development. And, and you know what else? What, what I want to tell every one of your listeners is that every one of them, whether they're an academic or they're an industry you know, person or they're a patient advocate or they're at FDA, whoever they are, every person can make a huge difference. And I think what, what the rare disease community experience for me has taught is the power of one. Every person can make a difference. I mean, I, I could tell stories forever about how this happens. I mean, it's just like my story there. I told you about EB and how that led to a change. It's just, well, I, I was walking on the streets of Denver, Colorado in August of 2008. I was attending the Democratic National Convention with my son, who we mentioned earlier. And I, I, I ran into Henry Waxman, that guy who was the father of the Orphan <laughs> Drug Act, and his wife on the street. And I said to him, you know, Henry, uh, there, there are congressional caucuses for some rare disease, for some diseases, but there's nothing for rare diseases as, as a whole. Do you think we should start a congressional caucus? What do you think about a congressional caucus for rare diseases? And he said, Frank, that's a great idea, but I'll tell you what, if, if the person who's seeking the Democratic nomination, Barack Obama, gets elected, I'm going to be very busy because he was chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, and he'd have a lot to do because Barack Obama's signature piece of legislation was going to be what led to Obamacare. So he says, I'm going to be very involved. I cannot head up that effort, but I will support it. And uh, so I then came back to Washington, talked to different groups, including the Every Life Foundation, NORD, and other groups. And today there is a very robust congressional caucus on rare diseases. And, and that happened. I mean, I'm walking on the streets of Denver. I didn't have a planned meeting with Henry. You know, these things, everybody has ideas. Everybody has has their story, like you said. And you don't know what that's going to lead to. It's the old story of the butterfly over the Amazon, you know. So I encourage everybody to participate, make a contribution, wherever you want. Yes, you mentioned um, the Rare Disease Congressional Caucus as first just an idea, and then just two weeks ago, um, I was there when you <clears throat> you opened the meeting of the Rare Disease Congressional Caucus on Capitol Hill as part of Rare Disease Week, <clears throat> and there were roughly, um, uh, I know the Every Life Foundation that you're vice chair of brought in about 900 advocates who flew into Washington, D.C. and had formal meetings with their legislators, and they, <clears throat> they many of them attended that meeting as did staffers of Congress, and um, um, Gus Bilirakis, a member of the House, kicked it off himself, and, and uh, I saw medical students there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's the chairman, yes. And yeah, I'm, he's when I flipped yeah. over the handout, it showed all the members of Congress who signed on to that caucus. It's such a yeah. such a transformation of the influence yeah. of the rare disease yeah. patient. Yeah. 
It is. It is. Thank, thank you for saying that. But I'm using that as an illustration of how each of us, I mean, that's what I'm saying is that, you know, uh, that's the power of one. I'm saying that everyone has that story. Everyone has that ability. And so I think it was very good of you, Steve, to, to say that each one of those advocates, those 900 advocates that the Every Life Foundation brought to Congress, um, each one of their stories was really important to tell, to communicate to their members of Congress. Um, Yes, that's how we get like we get those those small diseases done, um, the, and the bigger diseases that benefit from it. And we even see some of the some of the benefits as the larger diseases get subdivided through precision medicine into the smaller ends of one. So th this has been a wonderful conversation, Frank Sazanowski. I'm so happy that you had time to talk with us today to share that uh, unique perspective of the history that's been impacting all of us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for reaching out to me, Steve. I, I really appreciate it. Blessings on all your work. I'm sorry we're out of time, but um, that's, the, that's, that's the fact. We've been speaking today with Frank Sazanowski of the law firm Hyman, Phelps, and McNamara. This is WCG Patient Radio. Thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs>